Greetings, race community. Brent coming in live from Naples, Florida. It is early March, and I am so excited to be welcoming Amanda Tribue, who's the Vice President for Philanthropy and Alumni Engagement at Western Kentucky University. Welcome, Amanda. Thank you, Brent. So happy to be here with you today. Well, you are really happy, and Amanda was sharing. She was a little bit late to recording for a wonderful reason, which is... Uh, and she was okay with me sharing, but Amanda and I think a bunch of her peers on the leadership team were just having uh, vaccine day at Western Kentucky. So it is important to share that as we try to frame the context here, depending on when you listen to this show, but it's really exciting to be able to start having that conversation with guests. Oh, it's so exciting, Brent. And uh, I, I we were, it was out in the community and I went and gotten in line today and you start looking around and the president, and the first lady were, were several spots behind me. I look up, there's a dean across the way. And so I said it was the who's who of WKU out getting their first vaccination today. So it's been it's a great day already. I mean, it's amazing. It's, it's you know, basically exactly one year um, later. And uh, it's just uh, I'm sure it's really encouraging. And it had to be. I mean, what was the vibe? Was everybody just all smiles? Were people nervous? I mean, what was the scene? You know, I, it felt very positive. I think people were excited. It, it didn't seem at all. And people were very gracious. And the National Guard was out having, you know, helping to facilitate lines and people were just, you know, very gracious to them and their support and the workers were exceptional. I mean, it was just an outstanding experience all around. So I'm glad to hear it. Well, it's a Friday. We're feeling good. Amanda also had board meetings this week, uh, which we'll talk about a little bit, I suspect. But before we do all of that, why don't you um, give me a little bit about your background? Um, but let's go back to like 17 year old Amanda. What was uh, on your mind then? Could you have imagined you'd be in the philanthropy space or uh, what along the way um, moved you in this direction? Gosh, Brent, 17 year old Amanda liked to do a lot of different things. And I think that's always been part of me. I, I was the kid that Loved to play sports and would be at softball practice or a game and turn around and go to piano lessons in my uniform. Um, always very involved in a lot of different activities. Um, enjoyed people. My mom would tell you that as a little girl, I'd walk up to somebody in the grocery store and say, I like grapes. Do you like grapes? What's your favorite color? And it's so funny to look back on that now and think of it as a precursor to what I would end up spending my career doing. Um, which seems to fit so nicely. But I grew up in a small town in Kentucky, Glasgow. Uh, we do have a summer Highland Games in Glasgow, Kentucky, and even hosted the International Highland Games one year. So that's our small claim to fame. Uh, our marching band in high school actually wore kilts. Uh, so wonderful, wonderful hometown experience. Uh, I have a wonderful uh, family that, that mostly also live back in Glasgow as the oldest of three. Uh, girls who are, we're all very close to each other and, and doing very different things. But, um, you know, growing up, I thought I wanted to go to the big blue school in the state that is very famous for basketball. And as time became closer to, to going to college and 17, 18 year old Amanda decided I wanted to stay a little bit closer to home, but, but far enough away to have um, a, a good experience. And I'd been exposed, of course, to Western Kentucky University in high school. Uh, visited here for some uh, DECA events, business events, different types of recruitment events. And uh, I think at first really said, all right, I'm just going to go to WKU. Well, quickly, once I got to campus, 
got involved in campus life, absolutely loved it, and got my first job, which not unlike many of your other guests, was at the phone-a-thon. And it's the, gate, the gateway drug to advance. Absolutely, absolutely. But um, first semester, absolutely hated it, and I was going to quit. Um, Tell I, me more about that. I mean, give me some of the, the blooper reel from the uh, first semester of the phone-a-thon. Anything stand out? Yeah, I just think it, it's hard work. It's absolutely hard work. And it was something that I wasn't used to. And, um, you know, calling people. And at that time, we were still using paper cards. The next semester, we began the process of transitioning into the automated phone system. Um, but it, it was just hard work, I think, is, is what it was. And just the uncomfortableness of people telling you no and hanging up on you. And, uh, you know, just that persistence of, of knowing you had to keep after it. So, uh, I looked around for some other jobs and I didn't really find anything else, of course, that paid as well as Phonathon and fed you every night and provided some bonuses and rewards. So I, I reluctantly came back, but that's when it really started kind of hitting my stride at Phonathon. And um, we became automated. Not long after that, I became a student manager. On and on. The rest. How of about highlights from that experience or were there moments when you thought okay I went from really hating this to being frustrated to getting the hang of it to probably being pretty good at it to leading the team uh, were there any like aha moments where you're like whoa this is this is fun I, I enjoy this yeah it, it was probably it was uh second semester sophomore year and actually I was at a point back to earlier reference of me always liking to do a lot of different things I had taken every general ed course I could take I didn't know what I wanted to major in. I had no idea. I had taken the intro to teacher education. I was taking some biology and math courses, taking intro to business. Um, I, I honestly had no idea what I wanted to do. And I was on a phone call one night at the phone-a-thon. And I, to this day, wish I'd written down who the gentleman's name was. I went through my spiel, asking for money. And he paused and he said, you know, you're really good at this. I was like, really? I guess maybe I do kind of like it. I guess I have gotten pretty good at it. Um, and that was what switched for me. Uh, probably within days, weeks, whenever I had to declare my major, I went and declared marketing, um, went into the business college and it, it went on from there. And then I became you know, a manager of the program. And then once I graduated, moved into the full-time role in alumni relations and annual giving. I love how poignant that memory is. And I just, I wonder if he hadn't said that. I mean, in cer certain regard, it was like alumni mentorship, unsolicited Absolutely. mentorship. Like what if he, what if he hadn't said that, you know? And, who knew, and I didn't know at that time, right, that this would ultimately be my career. And, and certainly right. like I would be sitting in the chair I am today. And that's why it's, it's, you know, looking back on it, I really wish I'd written the, man, the man's name down, but I do literally remember sitting in the chair, like can have that feeling of, of when he said that to me and, uh, really now, you know, that was just really that pivotal moment for me um, now for, for my career. I love it. And like so many uh, people, you started your uh, advancement career professionally at WKU. You also pursued your MBA um, uh, while working, I believe, if, if I'm not mistaken. So just tell me a little bit more about what prompted you to continue going from being a real generalist, loving everything, not having maybe a clear path to then getting clarity and then doubling down by way of your MBA while working part-time and any perspective on lessons from the MBA that, I don't know, maybe you, you still think about today. 
Yeah. I, you know, I look back on that time in my career, right when I graduated. And um, at that time, the annual giving team was housed within the alumni relations and annual giving team. And so I, I had a dual portfolio of not only managing the Phonathon program, but also did senior class challenge. I did faculty and staff giving. I had um, a portfolio of president circle prospects that I was managing. I also did alumni chapters. I had reunion activities. I had other alumni events. I look back at that time in my life and then I started at my MBA. My MBA. Why not throw something else into the mix? Um, I, I look back at that time I've never worked so much in my life, not only professionally, but personally working on, on school. Um, lots of nights in the library after phonathon closed and we closed out and printed receipts for the evening at, at 9.30 at night. Uh, I'd go to the library, meet up with my team. Um, but I think that it really set a foundation for me of being able to really lean into a lot of different areas of the profession at that time the reason I pursued the MBA is really for the business aspects and, and the accounting and the finance and the management. And um, I really found myself becoming very interested in that piece of it. And for me, once I finished that MBA, I thought I wanted to jump ship and go into the corporate world. Fruital Looms headquarters is here in Bowling Green, Kentucky. Um, I saw a marketing job out at Fruit and I was like, this is my chance. I can stay in Bowling Green, I can get a big corporate job, and I can, I'm going to be set. Um, power suits and briefcases all day long. So I applied for that job. I was a finalist for the position and I didn't get it. And I was devastated. I was like, this is my job. This is my chance. Um, like, as with everything and what you often find in life is things happen for a reason. And not long after I didn't get that job, the director development job opened for the College of Business. I applied and I got it. And so I was able to move into major gifts at that point. And for me, I made the choice to move down the fundraising path because of that business background. Because I think that in fundraising, uh, philanthropy work, it, it's a great combination of being able to utilize those business skills and think about the bottom line, yeah. about um, ROI, um, the management, the marketing too, of course, um, that it, it really just, um, I, it was a pivotal moment for me. Well, tell me about that transition because I mean, and I'm sure it helps you today in your role because you have done events, you've done, you know, calling on the print cards, you've done, uh, you know, annual giving direct marketing, but then ultimately um, moving into a director development with the business school. I mean, that's effectively the shift from marketing to sales. And not everybody wants to call it like that, but going from one to many out, uh, outbound engagement um, to more one to one engagement. Was that a natural transition for you? Uh, you know, being out in the field versus in the office, et cetera. Um, any memories from like those early visits on the road? It was. And, um, you know, having that first position where I was able to have that as a part of my portfolio of work, along with all of those other activities where I was meeting with leadership annual giving donors. Um, Donald Smith is somebody who was my first boss out of college. He oversaw alumni relations and annual giving. Uh, funny he, enough, he was actually working on his um, EDD at the time through Vanderbilt. Um, and he, he had a coaching class and he said, I need to coach somebody, um, you're in. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, okay. 
Um, and so, you know, at that point we walked through, I set up a hundred day plan. And when I went into a transition from alumni relations and annual giving into major gifts, and I set out a hundred day plan for myself of what I was going to do in my first hundred days as a director of development, um, you know, getting. All right. So let's, I mean, you don't hear that very often. And also at that time, we're talking mid two thousands, the idea of a career coach or coaching was not nearly as in vogue as it is today. So let's talk more about what is it like, what was coaching and then what part of your hundred day plan could potentially be generalizable uh, for the audience? Yeah. And I actually then used it several times after that, when I moved jobs or when I was hiring in staff. And I think that it was a effective tool to, of course it changes, right? Um, But knowing that you have a roadmap and you have a plan and you're being thoughtful and intentional about it from the outset. I think that's the biggest advantage to doing that. Um, You know, thinking through who are all the campus partners that you need to meet within that first hundred days. Um, What what sort of um, background and historical information do you need to be reading to understand, um, you know, the the key players? What's the history? Um, Meeting with the dean when you're going into a role like a director of development for a college and making sure that you understand their vision and what they're trying to accomplish. Um, setting goals for when am I first going to get on the road? And so when's, when's, you know, probably within a month or so, you know, get your feet wet, understand the organization, but get out there and start talking to people and understanding, um, you know, what the alumni experience and the donor experience was. Um, so I, you know, it, looking back on that too, and he was actually writing his dissertation for his educational doctor on the first hundred days of a college president. And so that's what he modeled, um, this, uh, this experience for me after. Um, and it, you know, really was just, again, a, a point in time that I have continued to come back to and utilize in my career. How common do you think that is? I mean, obviously it's been a part of your life and I'm sure you make it a part of your organization, but I feel like it's pretty rare to have that kind of structured approach. And oftentimes folks are just thrown into it or there's, you know, some HR onboarding, but not necessarily here's your game plan for the next hundred days. I mean, I love the concept. Do you, do you hear about it among your peers? I think it's hit or miss. Um, and, and I think too, the larger of an organization that you get into, there's maybe pockets of it happening, but I, I, you know, I haven't found that a lot of organizations have adopted that type of approach, particularly thinking about someone's onboarding experience outside of human resources and, and, and that organization. So you, um, we're fortunate to have somebody sort of take Absolutely. you under the wing and get the first hundred days and and tell me about kind of when you reflect on your time in that frontline position with the business school, any major highlight? Uh, and then ultimately, uh, you did make the move to Wash U, which is a very different context. And I'd love to hear about um, that experience too. Yeah, I mean, it was it was wonderful because at the point, you know, I was only three years removed from undergraduate work and then had just completed my MBA. And so I was able to work with a lot of the professors who I really enjoyed um, to help raise money for their areas and their support. Um, It was a newer dean at the time. And so I was able to also use my historical context and experience as a student to help bring him into the the mold and um, help him launch his vision. Um, I will say that when the time came that I chose to explore other opportunities and think about leaving, uh, WKU is one of the hardest decisions I ever made in my career, in my life. Um, you know, I now I at that point been at the institution for 12 years. 
four years as an undergrad and then seven years, um, or yeah, seven years professionally. And I was essentially leaving for the first time at that point in my career, but I knew that I needed a change. I knew that I now wanted this as a career. I knew that I needed, I, I needed to do something different and challenge myself. And that Dean um, is one that, that pushed me to do it. My current VP at the time also pushed me to do it. Um, and, 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 and off I went to Wash U. And, and that was actually a connection through a, a case board and conference committee member that at the time was in our district, District 3. And um, he had been- Which, if you don't know, District three is a little bit different in the case community, okay? And I think the pandemic has really, really held back district three. Uh, district three is special, and, and you know that. And um, I've been extremely involved, and I have to 100% with no doubt say that I would not have been success as successful and as passionate about the career if I hadn't been as involved with case. Um, and I think district three really you know, helps um, nurture that and encourage that. And um, this was another one of those case connections of, of a guy who, uh, Mike Worley, who is now at Lander University in, in South Carolina, but um, at the time he was at East Carolina University, and uh, he previously wa worked at WashU. Uh, he said, hey, we've got some jobs over at WashU, you should check them out. And I was like, WashU, where, where is WashU? Uh, you know, kid from small town Kentucky, really had no context of, you know, elite private institutions. And so I was like, okay, sure. So I apply really not thinking this. I'm like, okay, it was the first job I applied for um, out of WKU. Went over there and interviewed. I did not get the first job, which would have been working directly with Mike. It was a regional director traveling to New York City. Um, they didn't think that I could go to New York City. They, I was, I was, I was stereotyped and anybody would tell you that. I mean, it was like, oh, She's, you know, she's been in Kentucky. She doesn't really know. I don't think she can. Okay. I was like, no big deal. No big deal. Um, You're like, I'm from Glasgow. Come on. How international can you get? So um, I actually then ended up getting involved in a couple other job searches um, and was very close to getting an offer from another institution that Mike Worley had actually connected me to. And he calls me back and I think he's calling me because his colleague is like, hey, we're getting ready to hire her. He was like, hey, we want you at WashU. And I'm like, wait, what? He's like, we got another regional director position open and we, we want you. And I was like, oh, okay. Um, so when it came down to it and I compared offers and I really thought about what kind of move I wanted to make, I really thought I could learn a lot for that type of institution given the opportunity. So I made the choice to move to St. Louis and um, I was there about two years as a regional director, traveled to the West Coast, uh, which included Seattle, Portland, uh, San Diego, and Kansas City. Throw, I mean, throw a little I, Kansas City in there for good measure. But uh, I would imagine that had to be kind of scary. I mean, just like given how much, like you knew WKU cold, you'd lived it. It was your community, you know, obviously big concentration of folks in Kentucky or the, you know, kind of greater region to then go elite private in a city you don't know, to cover a region you don't know. I mean, was that just like culture shock, terrifying? I mean- All of the like? above, Yeah, all of the above. Um, 
but also probably super healthy to go through an experience like that. You know, I, I will tell anybody today, and I've told lots of people this story, like it was the hardest two years of my life, no doubt about it. But I think it was the most transformative two years of my life. Um, it was very scary at times. Uh, I remember when I moved over there, my parents, my dad literally looked at me and said, because he's always lived in the state of Kentucky, um, in, our, in the region where I grew up. And he said, I just don't understand why you want to do this. But, you know, we're here for you and we support you. And um, I know you're going to be great. And um, it was hard. To traveling and, and, you know, being out on your own and, and talking to people. And, you know, there were times where when I went to meet with some folks at WashU that, you know, one, one couple wanted to basically tell me that my state public school education could not in any way compare to the education that their kids are getting at WashU. And so being able to learn how to deal with that professionally and, um, you know, kind of reflect and think, oh, yeah. And then, but they'd be like, no, like, and then, you know, it, it, so it, yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, we've had a bunch of folks on who have gone to their college, started as a phone-a-thon, end up joining an entry-level role of their own university, eventually break out. But I've never asked somebody this question, which is how often would somebody say to you, did you go to WashU? A lot. Did that come up all? I mean, is it like the first thing donors want to know is like, did you go there? And then when you say no, did, did you feel like they're immediately, I don't know, passing judgment? I'm just really curious. Like, how do you kind of go from where you have such say, a connection? I to, would say the majority yeah. no. The okay. majority no. Um, there was a few. Um, but, I, you know, I dealt with it definitely more, I think, at WashU than I did at Vanderbilt. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it, yeah, it was one of those things that I kind of had to be like, at first I was kind of like, oh, you know, I, I remember kind of like saying, oh, well, I went to Western Kentucky. Um, and then you just grow in confidence of like, no, totally. Western Kentucky University. Yes. I am just as worthy of sitting here in this conversation as anybody else. And Absolutely. What that was, was in, in the development shop at WashU. There were, I mean, it's a huge organization and there were people from everywhere in every institution. And frankly, most of the people I associated with didn't go to WashU uh, that were working in that organization. And, and so, but it's, you talk about a learning experience of going from, you know, an institution at WKU where at that time, probably 50 to 55 people total in the division, WashU at the medical center, and um, the whole fundraising, alumni development enterprise, 350 people, 400 people, whatever it was. Uh, shocking, right? Of like, wow. Um, but I learned so much about myself, uh, the volume that's expected in visits there. Um, at the point I was there, they were very activity driven on get out and see people, see people, see people. And uh, I look at that two years, it's high burnout, lots of turnover in those regional jobs. Um, because you're on the road nonstop. But I spent a lot of time in different parts of the country. I'd never traveled before. Um, yeah, I mean, so favorite, like favorite trip. I mean, getting to the Pacific Northwest, you see these, any, anything stand out from WashU where you're like, wow, I never would have gone here or seen this if it weren't for this experience. You know, let me say, there is one thing I always tell development officers when they are traveling is to spend time in the cities that you travel to. 
take time out of your schedule to see the sites, go to the museums, do activities, because I think that that shows your donors that you're meeting with and your alumni that you care and that you're engaged. And I think it always is great for building that rapport. Um, so I always would spend time when I was in those cities trying to do things. My favorite memory, Seattle, I mean, it, it's just such a different part of the country. Uh, going to the fish market, there was an oyster bar that I loved to go to and I would go frequently. Um, the people at the Hilton downtown Seattle knew me and the executive lounge because, you know, when you've got diamond status, you get your breakfast and you go up there and see the same people every month when you're there. Yeah, it's look, it's fair to say that the Glasgow oysters are not as competitive as the Seattle oysters, right? Oh my gosh, no. San Diego, I would say at the, I mean, I'm a Hilton girl, so I'd say at the Hilton Tory Pines. And yes. oh, it's, you know, it's just, you look at that and how, you know, you take the little Glasgow girl and throw her out into the world. And I think, I just remember being in awe a lot of, of seeing this country and, and just being, appreciative um, of having the experience. And um, yeah, I mean, and, and it just further, you know, the more I got into, into that job, I knew that I wanted to keep doing it, but I never felt settled in St. Louis. I think for me, okay. the road 24 seven, um, I, I'd formed some good friendships at work, but I never really settled in St. Louis or the community. And I knew that, that my next move, I wanted to be someplace that I felt like was more like home and a place that I knew I could spend more than a few years. And um, about two years in is when I decided to start looking and um, saw a job at Vanderbilt, actually in the law school and applied, made it through, I think one or two rounds. I uh, didn't get invited to campus. I was like, okay, it's too soon. Haven't built up my resume enough at WashU. Several months later, um, position came open for Peabody College. At, at Vanderbilt. Um, and I hesitated. I was like, oh, I'm not gonna put my application in. I just applied again. Something kept telling me, why not? You never know who's in the pool. And I went ahead and threw my application in the pool. And long story short, I got the job. So I was able to move to Nashville, which um, was about an hour and a half from where my family was located big city I was very familiar with. Um, it's one that we'd spent a lot of time in is being close to Bowling Green. And um, so I was, I was thrilled to get the opportunity to go to Vanderbilt. And it, it stuck. I mean, you spent nine years there. I know you built some great relationships that have led to where you are now. But when you think about the highlights of your time at Vanderbilt, I mean, you started in basically, uh, you know, I think this time in 2010 and were there for over nine years. I mean, what were some of the things that really stood out? during that experience? Vanderbilt went through a tremendous transformation during that time of its fundraising operation. Um, the Vice Chancellor Susie Stalkup had arrived um, less than a year before I got there. Uh, so a lot of transformation happened from what I would call a fundraising organization to a fundraising organization. Uh, a lot of implementation of metrics and accountability portfolio building. Um, I was a new gift officer for the college at that time based upon a feasibility study, said they needed another gift officer for Peabody. So, you know, I came in and had to build my portfolio from scratch, which is hard work. Um, I was basically given a lot of discovery names and um, told to get after it. And uh, it, it took a couple of years. I mean, it's hard work. It is hard work to build out a portfolio and 
uh, get a whole lot more no's and a whole lot more I'm good with making my annual gift conversation. Um, but, but the persistence paid off. And um, Dean Camilla Benbow of the college is just an incredible, incredible thought leader, um, researcher, and leader of that college. And um, she really empowered me uh, during that time. And we had such a great working relationship together. And you know, over that time and, and my advancement within that college was able to um, really, we, we closed some really great gifts and, um, you know, did some really wonderful things. And uh, at the same time, WKU was calling you back to the Hill. And you alluded to this earlier. Um, president Tim Caboni, who is our, our president here at WKU, uh, was a faculty member at Vanderbilt when I arrived back in 2010. And um, he, Tim is very well known in the philanthropy circles. Um, his actual research interest is institutional advancement. He has spent a lot of time, um, he built out the institutional advancement program in higher education at Vanderbilt, which a lot of colleagues um, in our industry went through that program. Uh, and so I knew President Caboni at, at Vanderbilt. We'd spent some time together. He was there about two years uh -huh. when I first arrived before he left to go to Kansas. Um, and next thing I knew, he turns back up at my alma mater as president. And did you like see the press release and just notice it or did it kind of? Funny story. Yeah. So at Vanderbilt, we office at the Lowe's Vanderbilt Tower across the street from campus. And one of my, my colleagues at the office said, I think I saw Tim Caboni in the parking garage today. And I was like, really? I said, that's interesting. And not too long after that, I'd seen on Twitter or social media or something, they were like, um, Board of Regents are conducting interviews in Nashville for the president of WKU. And I was like, huh, that's interesting. And I still really, I, I knew that he was interested in, in seeking out a president role. Um, but yeah, it wasn't long after that, that he was announced. So um, of course I started closely following what was happening. I was always closely following, very connected to WKU, even when I was gone, um, came even more interested, um, once, once he arrived. And then, um, two years later, I was co-chairing case district three conference in Atlanta. And we asked president Caboni to come speak, um, several months prior. And then, um, I guess it was probably a month or two after that conference is when they were gonna start the process to hire the vice president's position. And he sat down with me at that conference and we had a great talk, a great conversation um, and the rest is history. So you uh, took the position, you accepted the role and joined as vice president in June of 2019, which must seem like 10 years ago at this point, but it was not that long ago, but it was, so it's June, 2019, which was, basically when we were getting connected um, as well. But what was it like when you got there in the normal times, um, in the before times as people are calling it? Um, it had been a while, I know you'd stayed connected, but from 2008 to 2019, did it feel the same? Did it feel very different? You know, obviously new president, you know, he wanted your vision of the future, not the past, but what did it feel like after, you know, kind of 10 years away? In some ways, it felt like I had never left. Um, so, you know, there were still a lot of familiar faces around. Um, 
there was still uh, a lot of donors in our portfolios as I started digging in that I knew and I was familiar with, which is great to come back to a place where you already have relationships. Um, the university had gone through two tough years of budget reductions. Um, we had a wonderful president for 20 years who was a, an alum of the institution and uh, did wonderful things. And we had seen an enrollment decline. And, um, and so there was some really tough decisions that had been made just before my arrival that, you know, the campus was still reeling from. And uh, so to come in at that time, I think there was still a lot of uncertainty about the future. And, you know, how are we going to get this ship turned around? Um, I have to say for our organization, in philanthropy and alumni engagement, and, you know, this is something I've shared with our team. So this is not me you know, say anything that I wouldn't say in front of them is, you know, I walked into the office and I felt it was very tired. I felt people were just going through the motions. Um, they'd done their job and a lot of them had done it for a while. And, you know, they were like, we're, they were just going through the motions. You know, it was kind of cluttered around the office. Um, you know, I, I, and, and now when I look at, back on that, I think that that visual of how the office looked was really like how people felt and how, um, you know, they, they needed a jolt. We needed to pick ourselves up. Yep. We needed to think differently and we needed to challenge ourselves. And um, yeah, you, you and I met probably a month after that um, at another case event uh, summit in, in Boston. And I, and I think that it was just one of those things where right place at the right time, me coming into this going, what am I going to do? I'm, I'm looking yeah. at reports. I'm digging into some of those numbers where I'm like, oh my gosh, like our pipeline doesn't exist. Our participation percentage has just fallen off a cliff. And what are we doing to address it? And I start talking to folks, we're not. Um, right. And I think, look, like, I'll be honest, um, at that time, Evertrue had a partnership with Western Kentucky and I would have scored it as one of our least successful partnerships. We were not oh. delivering. You barely knew. There definitely was no strategic, you know, approach to our work. And, and we, we take responsibility for that. But it really was an opportunity where, you know, you came in um, understood the context and, and wanted to push immediately for innovation in a pragmatic way. At the same time, it was frustrating for us because we were looking at the data and seeing there is so much in digital engagement. There is wealth, like there is real untapped potential, but these people are not having a relationship with Western Kentucky. They're either lobbying in their annual gift in response to direct marketing or phonathon, or they're not on again, off again, but there was no real strategic approach to it. And I do think like, you know, just whether it's Tim or you, sometimes we talk about Western Kentucky or we talk about Evertrue or we talk about whatever organization and it really is about the people and, and leadership matters so much where you can take the exact same university, the ex exact same alumni affinity, like the exact same um, even staff, but with the right kind of leadership, vision, goal setting, motivation, it matters so much. It's not Western Kentucky. It's the combination of specific people. And I think what was so fun after that case dinner at uh, Barcelona or wherever we were, yeah, it, Barcelona. it's a restaurant in, uh, in Boston, not actually in Spain, um, but we were able to come out of it and start putting together a game plan for really building a new approach to personalized relationship building, digital first. This was pre-pandemic. 
Um, but it was really an opportunity to just start from scratch. And you had a mandate, I think, from President Caboni to take a big swing and to make some bets. But I'd love to just hear a little bit more about, you know, not from my vantage point, from yours, when you saw kind of the missed opportunity in the data um, and, and heard about this concept of donor experience, what were some of the things you cons- wrestled with, frankly? And then uh, I'd love to kind of just get your perspective so far. Sure. Um, you know, I think for, for us, I'm like, this work takes time. Building relationships with people take time, takes time. Um, I tell our staff often that it's taken a long time for us to get to the point where we were when I got here almost two years ago. It's going to take us a little bit of time to get back out of it. But as long as we're making progress, that's what's important. I, I admit I'm not a patient person. I like for things to happen. I like them to happen quickly. So that's something that I work on myself and, and something that I, um, you know, strive to, to do better in. But I knew that we needed something drastic to change the way that we were doing our business. For example, I knew that our leadership annual giving officers at the time, I call it the phone book method. Um, Print out your Excel spreadsheet. What city are you traveling to? Sort it and run down it. Um, See, he'll take your call. Really no strategy or approach. You know, I I talked to them. One of the things I did when when I arrived here was I... Uh, within the first three weeks, had a, a meeting with every single person in the organization and asked them a, a, the same set of questions and said, you know, what are our opportunities? Uh, what do you enjoy doing? What are things that you think that, and, and themes started to emerge. If people just felt like they didn't have any concrete direction, it's not that they weren't willing to do something different. Um, they just needed to, to, to be pushed and, and, and feel like, you know, they were contributing in a meaningful way. It was, I'm just kind of doing my work, but I don't really think I'm doing anything that's helping the organization. So, um, you know, thinking through that, we, we are very restricted by budget resources. Like I said, I'd come in after two tough years, I was facing another significant budget cut uh, to our operating budget because because we had gone through a riff on campus, we were trying to preserve all of our positions. So it, it, it was another big hit to our operating. And so I started talking to my team about, okay, what can we do to scale up effectively and efficiently um, and, and, and do something creatively? And, and that's where we started talking. I started thinking about this digital and I knew some other schools had started doing um, the digital work, but I also frankly knew that from our standpoint, our size of institution, um, the lack of budget that I had, um, and the expertise of our personnel, we couldn't have done this on our own. I, there's no way. It would have taken us probably two years to try and put all the technology together, do the analysis on the portfolios, get the, all of that together. And so once we started talking about that concept for us in our size of institution, the partnership is what really um, pushed me over the edge to say, okay, well, this is something we can turn around in a few months of implementation and, and get our, our callers and our, our um, gift officers in this program. Um, yeah. So for me is what really, um, you know, put me. Well, and, and I think like a lot of it is rooted in data and, we, you know, we, saw you were either going to have to hire a whole bunch more gift officers, which was not realistic in the context of your budget, um, or not build relationships with these people. And we just felt like there's got to be a way 
to bring something that back to your roots is high volume, like a call center, but much more personalized with an actual relationship building opportunity so that you actually might know who the guy is who told you that you're really good at this because you would have had an opportunity to build a relationship in an ongoing way. Uh, and so that was really the origin of what we now call Evertrue Premier, this donor experience officer management program that has already expanded beyond that, both up and down your giving pyramid. But when we sat down in November of 2019, I remember looking at some data where you got around 100,000 alumni, 90,000, something like that. About 120, about 120. Okay, yeah, 120. And so we were just sort of a really rough analysis, which was, okay, 120,000 constituents, uh, 7,000 or so were giving on an annual basis, uh, which was down from an average of 8,000. Um, uh, but just over the course of the five years prior to us sitting down, 15,000 people had given. And all time, there had been over 37,000 donors. So on one hand, you would look at the numbers and say, we have a low participation rate, or we only have 8,000 people giving out of our 120,000. But the reality is, at some point in their journeys, over 35,000 people had felt that combination of affinity right. and a willingness to cut a check. And then when you start cutting down into the data, there's some incredible high net worth lapsed donors in many cases who did love the institution. And you're not gonna recapture those people with a transactional call center. They're not gonna be inspired by a piece of mail, no matter how good it is. Doesn't mean that that stuff can't be a component of a relationship building program, but you really gotta actually build the relationship. So that was the catalyst to launch this program, not just let's hire some digital gift officers or DXOs as we call them, but let's start with the data, identify the absolute best unassigned prospects, and then equip the team with tools and approaches to really um, do high volume outreach, more personalized than a call center, more efficient than a frontline team. And you took a leap of faith on us and we, you know, kind of vice versa. We're like, is this gonna, you know, the work, work the way that we, help, uh, that we hope it will. And, and obviously, you know, we're super uh, energized and we appreciate you being on the, sh on the uh, show today, but I'd love just your perspective on that journey. I mean, it seems like forever ago, but also yesterday in a certain regard and what you've learned so far. Yeah, I mean, it's it's been, it has been, I told somebody the other day, I was catching up with a, a colleague at Vanderbilt that I'm still great friends with, and um, just chatting about what's been going on, and, you know, how are you doing, do you miss us, and I said, of course I miss you sometimes, like, I had, an, I had almost a decade of my life, almost 25% of my life spent in a very wonderful place that I love the people, I love my work there. But I look back now on the last year and which, you know, it's been tough with the pandemic, but we've utilized that crisis. We did not let that crisis go to waste. And we have really utilized that time to refine who we are and lean into this program and how this program could help us connect with more people than ever before. And it's been the most fun year of my career, bar none. Um, you know, I wouldn't say it, that, that we haven't had some rough times, of course. Um, everybody adapting to the virtual environment, the challenges of family and kids and all the things that have happened, but really transforming our culture and our institution. And I think this program has been integral into changing the culture and changing that we are going to be accountable uh, to our teammates and to our organization, that we're going to be resilient and that we're gonna to adapt to change. Um, we've changed our approach to how we look at 
our portfolios with this program all along the way. And I think that's what's great. We work with Coleman on your team and, and we worked with Kevin out of the gate and, you know, both of them have just been incredible. Coleman um, and Ron Wilson, who's on our team, who manages the, the DXO program, are on the phone every day with each other talking about it. Um, we can't wait till Coleman can come to Kentucky and say he's going to wear his cowboy boots and um, come down and see us. But, um, you know, it, it's just been one of those things that it's been so much fun. And I just know that this is going to change our giving. It's going to change um, our alumni connections to this university. It's going to take some time and we know that, but it's the right thing to do. We are connecting with people in a very personal way. We're already starting to see people who have reached out to say that's, um, you know, it's so cool. You sent me this video. That's so cool. You followed up with um, our students that are now in the program are doing exceptional work um, and having a lot of positive conversations out of that. So um, it, it's just been a really, really fantastic now year and a half of, of working together. Well, thank you so much. Let's talk a little bit about the staff, because I know that your, your colleagues, right, when you walked in, you're like, how can I inspire the group? How can I really get people um, motivated and you know, you've got colleagues, Ryan and Haley and, and Mitchell and others who, who are in this program. And, and then we can talk about the student element as well. But just tell me a little bit about the before and after that you've seen with some of your colleagues. You know, it's it's been transformational for them in their careers, too. Um, Haley is one in particular who was really craving um, direction, craving training. Um, and she's... Uh, she, she's incredible. She had a call this past week and she actually shared this with, with our team where, you know, I've talked a lot with our team about when you're, when you're having conversations with donors, you're not going in and saying, well, it's $10,000 to endow a scholarship. It's what sort of impact do you want to have? You're making sure you're asking those open-ended big questions um, to really get at the root of what people want to do and what their passions are. And, um, she shared with our team this week during our, our team meeting yesterday, she said, I am so excited. She said, I've had that question in my back pocket for almost a year. And I finally got the opportunity this week with a donor on the phone to say, what sort of impact do you want to have? And there it went from there. The guy's like, well, you know, what does it take to a fully endow a scholarship? And I think my brothers want to get involved. And it, I mean, it, it was just an incredible call and to see how happy she was. Um, and, and, and she's, you know, just her development has been wonderful. Ryan was the same way. I think Ryan, Ryan is involved in things all across our community. He's the president of NAACP. Um, he's a volunteer on campus. He teaches courses. He just had his second baby this week. Um, he's been, uh, he is a wonderful person and needed direction. And so this program has helped him know every day when I come in, who do I call? Who do I connect with? Um, just the way that we work through these processes, I think, has really created, um, and, and they're working more than they've ever worked before. I mean, that's the thing, too, is their days are more full and more busy than they've ever been, but they're more happy. They're productive. They're closing gifts. Every single one of them, Mitchell included, has also, um, he had some, some experience in insurance before he came to work with us. And so he is very familiar with sales and, and was, is very clear with, you know, who he needs to close and translating that now into higher ed has been a really good shift for him. And so every single one of them um, have really, uh, I mean, it's just been remarkable. It's been great. 
and just as a point of reference, if you're listening and you're not totally familiar with the program, in this case, uh, Haley, uh, Mitchell, and Ryan, who Amanda's referencing, are all carrying portfolios of a thousand people, and uh, they're not traveling, right? And this was pre-pandemic, and, and right. certainly coming out of the pandemic, I think this kind of work is going to become uh, the norm as opposed to the exception. But uh, even uh, through early February this fiscal year 2021, Haley, Mitchell, and Ryan have all been in touch not just one time, but with multiple times with over 600 prospects each. And we've got, you know, several months to go here in fiscal 2021. And so it really, I mean, we keep talking about that idea of more personalized than a call center, but much higher volume and more inefficient than a, than a frontline fundraising um, team. Do you agree with that? Would you modify it? I mean, you started in the call center, you've watched that space um, obviously change a lot and struggle in a certain regard, but um but then also frame it through like, we've got this amazing student group now. And I really look at your student DXO program as pre-professional philanthropy training. I mean, this should be an on-ramp to become uh, a future development officer in a really, really systematic way. Absolutely. Um, you know, that's what the call center was. And, but, I, but I really view this as more of a professional opportunity. And, you know, I told this all student, all the students when, we went through their training back last fall. I said, I hope that you all develop a passion for this career, but I also know that many of you have dreams outside of this. One's going to med school, um, others are going to other professional programs or, or have other career aspirations, but I know that the skills they're gonna learn through this program are gonna carry them into their careers. We also have a few that we're, not, we're talking to or graduating in a few weeks that we're very optimistic we're going to retain on our staff. And, and the beauty of it is they will be able to literally graduate and walk across the stage. And if they want to start with us on Monday, they know exactly what to do. And um, that's what's. Well, we've got, our, we've got our eyes on a few of your DX, SDXs yes, too. Brent, so we might away. be competing a little bit. I know, but you know. Uh, uh, so yeah, it's, it's exciting. It's so exciting to, to really, you know, um, because I love this. I love this work. Absolutely love the work. And I love sharing it with, with younger colleagues and professionals who have a passion for it and can develop a passion for it. And, um, you know, to be able to create this pipeline of talent for us is, is really critical piece as we move along in this work. But to your point, I, I think, you know, I was a person that, you know, has, has spent a good portion of my career now traveling a lot. You know, when I was at WashU and Vanderbilt, that was absolutely the model of, traveling, being out, uh, the trips I made, I had all my, you know, status and all the things that I loved about that work. Um, but now when you see what you can do um, in this very methodical, uh, very strategic way, there's absolutely no reason why you should be going on a plane to go see people if you haven't had conversations with them. So let's talk about that because you just got your vaccine and the dean's getting the vaccine and the president's getting the vaccine and it's it's vaccine day at Western Kentucky. But we are we are hearing a lot of people say things like, I can't wait to get back out on the road. And I mean, I've been in 25 states in the last you know 10 months, so I've kind of been on the road, but I haven't been with people, right? So there is an element of we all do want to get back together, but- how do you balance that with um, the, frankly, the inefficiency of going out to uh, Seattle and, and doing those things or, or trying to get to Washington, D.C.? And I think what we've been saying a lot, both to the Evertrue team, but also in the market, is I think low ROI advancement travel needs to be gone forever, but high ROI travel absolutely needs to come back. 
tell me about what you just said, which is if you're trying to get to know someone, you should not be hitting the road the way that we would have used that we would have before. That can now be done digitally. Absolutely. I, I think that it's 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 built into the training. It is built into making sure we're asking the right questions um, of the people that we're contacting. And when it, you know, I, I, I agree with you 100%. I want to meet with people as well. I want to see people. There is a place when you're getting ready uh, to go. Case District 3. Yeah. Case yeah. District 3, yeah. Uh, you know, when, you're, when you get to the point of, um, you know, really fleshing out some ideas too. I mean, I, there absolutely is a point, but from that, those first steps, that identification and that qualification, um, it can be done absolutely over Zoom, over phones, um, if you're doing it and you're doing it in the right way. And, you know, I think about in the past of just, you know, we use different operations I've worked in. It's like, okay, well, if you get five appointments in whatever city, you can travel there. And it was never really, well, what are you going to accomplish? Or, oh, you got five visits. Great. Go. Yeah. Um, I, I yeah. And pre-work so in that, that strategy. We did a webinar last week where we talked about, you know, the before and after and the old way was eight visits a month. And we think the new way is eight visits a week or maybe eight visits a day. And I'm sure you've had days where have you had eight visits and probably now president Camboni can join and then the Dean can join and a faculty member can pop in. And like, that might be way better for a donor yeah. than you going out to Seattle, staying yeah. at the Hilton, having some oysters and then having a few visits and no offense. Like that is, part of the job and, and some people are attracted to that part of the job. And, but at the same time, um, I just don't know. Yeah. I just think it's got a lot, look a lot different going forward. Yeah, I, I would love to kind of get your perspective. Cause we've talked a little bit about the idea of like the DXO program that we're doing, but you're not a DXO. The president's not a DXO, but a lot of the principles are still applying. And I I'd just love to get your perspective on conversations. You've been able to loop the president into that you never could have done before with travel schedules and trying to coordinate or any like elevated donor experiences that you've been able to be a part of that were actually facilitated because we're now in this Zoom economy. Yes, we um, actually transitioned um, back in the fall. Um, some of our, we had started a tradition of a summit awards the night before our homecoming celebration on the Thursday evening. And that's where we did all of our philanthropists of the year, um, top awards of the institution. And so we decided to stretch that out over a volunteer uh, a National Philanthropy Week um, in November around National Philanthropy Day. And so every day we highlighted um, a student philanthropy um, award, a faculty staff philanthropy award, honored our National Philanthropist of the Year. And so we um, coordinated some virtual um, surprises to some of those folks uh, that received those awards and to be able to pull him in and you know, record and see their surprise and integrate that into some video work that we did. Um, one of the, our National Philanthropists of the Year um, is a former football player and um, is very generous to the football program, also to some academic programs on campus. And so we planned that also around a football game. And so we were able to take them down on the field, socially distance and incorporate some of the um, work from the week where we shared with them, they were getting this award and then stories from the student athletes and you know, tears in your eyes, wonderful experience. So, um, you know, that was a highlight for us that week. We, we've made several visits together virtually um, with folks that when, to your point, when you look at trying to coordinate everybody's schedules and get him off campus um, and, and 
align it with theirs, it, it's been wonderful. Our, our DXO team and our um, major gift officers now are also incorporating a lot of video. We had a faculty member last week that one of our officers um, reached out because uh, the alum mentioned, you know, Dr. Kessler was amazing. He was so inspirational to me. She emailed Dr. Kessler. Dr. Kessler, within like 30 minutes, sent her a two-minute video, which she immediately sent off to. That's amazing. I mean, this is like, that to me is the kind of thing that we have only not even scratched the surface. I mean, how do we make that? as well, yeah. How do we make that the norm, right? Where it is, you don't need the faculty member to manage the relationship or to get in the weeds. But if you can have that surprise and delight moment via an iPhone routed to the donor, how much better is that than just the officer taking them to lunch or whatever? It's like so much better and way more cost effective than the officer taking them out to lunch. Oh yeah. And I think that it's just, it's putting yourself out, out there and pushing people because I think it's so out of the people. It's, it's so outside of people's comfort zone to be able to do this because they're so used to doing it the way we've always done it. And, and so once you try it a few times, like, oh, that was pretty cool. Oh, I got a really great reaction. Uh, maybe I'll try it some more. And so that's where I'm starting to see our team now. Some of them in it almost a year. Others have been working in this, you know, really concentrated digital space for about six months are starting to become much more comfortable. Now they're yeah. getting so much more creative. Um, we had one of our DXO officers, um, a former president was in her portfolio. And she's so creative. She walked out behind the building where the sign is. It says the president parks here. And she took her intro video in front of the president's spot. Um, another gift officer who went in front of a fraternity house uh, because the donor had made gifts to the fraternity house and the guys were hanging out on the porch. And so she quickly got the fraternity members to tell him thank you for the gift. And I love it. I love it. Videos. The creativity has just been booming and it's just getting people outside of their comfort zone and me continuing to encourage and push them to take risk. I've told them all along, look, I am not going to fault you if you try something and it fails, if you learn from it. Now, don't embarrass yourself or embarrass the university. That's rule number one. Um, but otherwise, if you're trying new things and, and continually pushing that envelope, let's go. Like, I, I'm so excited by that and, and want our team uh, to know that I'm behind them and I support them because it's me who, if something happens, it's not this. Yes. I've got their back and, you know, go. But you know it. I mean, we're competing for attention, right? We are competing with TikTok. We're competing with Snap. Yeah. We're competing with Instagram. People only have so much time in their day. And if it's not relevant, interesting, funny, emotional, Nobody has time for it. You, you might know, as well not, not do it. We're honestly. not going to compete. You know, we're competing I've, against fruit. We're competing against. Funny. I've even done that. Like over the last year, and I think some of our team have, has looked at me like I'm crazy because they're like, hey, we need to send out this social post or we need to drop this email. Or we, and I'm like, why? Because that's what we always do when we send out a newsletter, an event invitation or whatever. And I'm like, but Why? And I'm like, think about all the emails we're sending, scale it back. Let's be more thoughtful. Let's be more intentional. Let's be more creative. You know, outside of just the digital engagement work that we've done, um, you know, our team's been exceptionally creative in, in the marketing space. Our day of caring last what, a year ago, we're planning for our second day of caring on April 15th. Um, it went so well for us also on a enrollment front. 
Um, it, you know, stabilizing our enrollment, growing our enrollment is everybody's job on this campus. And that is one thing the president has made 100% clear. And we, we do our part in that. Day of Caring last year on April 9 was such a great yield event, not only for our alumni, but then our students. We had people pushing out, um, you know, social media on their own. Everybody on campus participated that we were like, why are we going to do a day of caring? Yes, giving is part of day of caring because giving is caring as well. But really making a part of that is more of a campus-wide marketing event, um, feel-good event really, really worked well for this institution. And um, we're planning our next one that, that I'm really excited about on that front as well. I love it. Amanda, every time we catch up, I'm just so fired up. I'm super inspired. I think you're one of just the great emerging, you know, leaders in, in the space who is, is willing to um, take some risk and mix it up a little bit in a pragmatic way. You're not just, you know, throwing really everything against the wall, money. but, you know, really <laughs> trying to be pragmatic about making an impact in the short term while setting WK up to be stronger and healthy for the long term. I have to ask, um, where are you in the hiring thaw versus freeze sort of, um, um, you know, context right now? And how do you see that playing out yeah. over the next year? You know, our university is, we've stabilized our budget and enrollment was stronger this past year than, than we anticipated given a pandemic, which is just exceptional. It's a lot of creative work on our administration's team. Um, on some new scholarship programs. So, um, you know, it, it's good that we are entering a phase of being able to lift that fog. Um, you know, we've, we've held it down with a lean team over the past few years. And I'm really encouraged that it looks like we're probably gonna be able to hire a couple of new DXO officers. Hopefully a few of those SDXOs are, will roll right into those roles. Um, we're looking at some new roles on our alumni engagement team as well. And again, we've reimagined what those roles look like, more focused on engagement, yep. this is events and those type things. Um, so looking forward to that. Um, as you mentioned earlier, I'm coming off board meetings today and, and gave a really, really great presentation about where we are with, with cash flow and this program. And uh, the president, you know, really thanked our team for the hard work. And he said, we're going to work on their team not being as lean very soon. So that was recorded. I'm very optimistic that we'll have some, some more um, jobs opening soon, but we're doing great things. We have a lot of fun here and um, I'm excited to watch the operation grow. Amanda, if people want to stay in touch with you, what's the best way to do that? LinkedIn is, is, is the best place to connect. Um, you can also find me on the wku.edu website, um, but I love connecting. I love mentoring, I love networking. Um, and, and would love to hear from folks if they would like to connect. It's Friday afternoon. It's almost five o'clock. Amanda has had board meetings, a vaccine, and a podcast recording. What a Friday. Thank you, Amanda. Thank you, Brent. I really, really appreciate your time. Uh, and I would encourage everybody listening, look up Amanda on LinkedIn, reach out to her. Uh, and, and I hope that um, you'll build some new relationships coming out of this. Thank you, Brent. It's been a lot of fun. All right. Cheers. Bye.